This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. It is one of the really sad side effects of this whole pandemic situation, and that is the number of people who've kind of ramped up trying to scam people out of their money. There was this other horrifying story out of Toronto last week where a woman lost her entire life savings to a romance scam online. And we know that police right across the country are reporting and seeing an increase in this type of behavior. Law enforcement agencies have issued so many warnings to avoid how to avoid essentially getting duped by these people, but it still happens. So we thought, let's talk this morning about what's out there, what you've seen, how you can protect yourself. So joining us is BCSI Investigations President Denny Gagnon. Denny, good morning morning how are you i am good thank you is this do you think one of the more popular scams and that is the kind of online dating romance scams we've seen a huge increase over the past few months and uh even dr Teresa tam she weighed in at one point saying that you know she's not a dating expert but she said that you know basically dating virtually may be a good approach uh, the problem occurs when uh, we did have a lady um, previously that lost 1.2 million on a dating site. So you can imagine the scope of the uh, of the damage that can be done. So what's basically occurring is that people see an opportunity to basically put a decent picture on online and you know looking possibly totally different than the way they look because people are very visual on the internet and basically start the communication with the individual, which normally in a very short period of time goes towards asking for money. That's right. really the way it goes and or possibly blackmailing after requesting some um, kind of controversial pictures of the, of the individual. That's what we're seeing quite often. Do we underestimate the lengths, Denny, that some of these scammers will go to to create that fake profile and convince you that all is real? They are extremely sophisticated. Um, you know, to extract... 1.2 million, for example, from a, a woman with another one in the range of about 350,000 from a male. Um, they are very, very convincing and sophisticated. Often they will say, I can't come and meet you. You know, I can't travel because obviously the pandemic, now they're using the pandemic to their benefit. Mm-hmm. Some of them will wear masks when they communicate on, if they're Zooming or if they're communicating online. Some of the website now, dating sites have video conference. So they will put a mask on and basically... You know, you can't tell if, in fact, it's the person or not. So they are extremely sophisticated in their approach. And then they will ask you to send a wire or they will send you, you know, through private company or through your bank and basically use an interim, which we call mules. And we had one of those where it was going to the United States and then going to Russia. And basically that mule is the interim. And that interim keeps a, a small amount of money and basically forwards the funds to. And I'm talking about money because that's really the way it goes towards is extracting money from individuals on a large sum of money over a period of time. Right, like you would think, though, that anybody that you've just met online asking you for money would be a huge red flag. But does this also, do you think, speak to how how lonely and isolated a lot of people are feeling, that they're kind of desperate for that connection? Well, when you start feeling, you know, lonely, isolated, like we are right now, especially in the pandemic, as you know, it's really hard to meet with people and, and have a contact and have dinner and so on. So people are isolated. And when you're isolated, you look for uh, exciting things. There's all kinds, as you know, and I won't get into a lot of names, of exciting websites that you can watch people doing certain things online. I don't have to mention the name. And people are attracted to that because it connects them to people. But you have to be aware of the consequences of 
the, you know, you have to look at the warning sign. I mean, if you promise to meet you in person, the person never comes. We see that a lot, you know, and they string you along saying, well, I can't come now. I'll come a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Can't travel. The border is closed. And now we're dealing with other problem, which is jurisdiction. You know, even if you catch someone in Russia or, or whatever, or a different country, then you have to charge that person. You have to get the evidence to be able to charge that person well. and have the police department, which are inundated with those cases. For example, the FBI, my last communication with them was they don't look at a case under a million dollars. Really? Because there's just, there's just way too many cases where, uh, you know, they don't have the resources to be able to handle that. And then the criminals are using VPNs now, which are hiding their IP address, which is their fingerprint online. So it's getting more and more and more sophisticated. So the secret is, if I have a secret, is to do a very <laughs> in-depth due diligence, right? Know who you're dealing with. Ask a lot of questions. If the person tells you they don't have a house, they don't have a car, they don't have a job... You know, that's a bit of a red flag. And the, thing, the fact is that if they can't afford to come and see you and they want you to send money, do you really want to, you know, I'm not saying that you're not going to go out with somebody who doesn't have any money, but is that something that you want to start with bringing him here on your money? Yeah, but shouldn't, Denny, I think the rule for this should be if you've met somebody online in the last year or even recently and they ask you for money for anything, that is a red flag right there. Stop right there and say, uh, like, that That should be something that you do not do. Yeah, you know, it's common sense. But the thing is that love is sometimes blind, right? When you get into really attracted to someone, you start doing certain things that you would not normally do. And the people we're dealing with are very, they're business people, they're sophisticated people, and they just get wrapped up into somebody making yeah. them believe that they're going to have this great relationship, you know, uh, over... Incredible relationship, or they will move, have them move to where they live. And they're, like I said, they're very convincing. This is the, what the problem. But if you have been scammed, you know, if you're able to prevent it, and you know, you can look at those pictures and you can run those pictures online and, you know, and basically do a search online and determine if the picture is, um, you know, of, of someone in real that has been on many, many websites, you can do that. Right. But also, don't share any intimate photograph, don't shine any private information until you know who you're dealing with. But if you have been scammed, so what do you do? Well, report it to your police department. They are inundated with those calls. The Anti-Fraud Center, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, will make a record of it. Contact the media in some cases. In some cases, if it's a large sum, the media has been very cooperative to prevent Mm -hmm. further people being scammed. Contact your financial institution. Just say, I've been scammed. In the case of the 1.2 million, we recovered 800,000, which was great. I mean, we had great cooperation from the financial institution. Doesn't always happen. You have to have great records and, and be kind of a, a credible client. Monitor your credit online. There is all kinds of agencies that can monitor your credit. Right. Some cases, some people, when they've lost a lot of money, they'll, they'll look at us as a private investigator to dig in and have them organize their information. Obtain legal advice if you need to. Cancel, you know, change your credit card, cancel your credit card. If it's, a, for example, um, a private company uh, that's moving your money, and I won't get into any names, they may be more difficult to recover your funds because they will right. say you should have done your own due diligence before you send the funds. Okay. In my view, it should be their responsibility to check the recipient is, is really who they say they are at the other end. They don't do that. Good advice this morning. Denny, thank you so much for your time. Okay, have a great day. You too. That's Denny Gagnon, president of BCSI Investigations. This is Mornings with Simi. So the power went out at my house yesterday. First time in all the years that I have lived there that that actually happened. But it was out all over the place in Vancouver. Really noticed it on my drive home. 
And a couple of other things as well. And I'm relieved that it turns out I wasn't the only one who noticed this. Our Nikki Reitmeyer joins us this morning with more on that. Hi. Good morning. Yes. So you were affected by that transmission circuit failure, which is what BC Hydro was calling it. About 60,000 people, from what I understand, were in the dark because of this. Yeah. And it was kind of like one light, one traffic light was working and the next one wasn't working on my drive home. So it was really kind of a patchwork. Yeah. 60,000. That's a lot of people. But what I really noticed, Nikki, what I could not believe was like, everybody knows what to do, right? If the traffic light is so clearly out, you do the four-way stop procedure. At one intersection in particular, I saw three cars just blow by at the regular speed, not doing the, and I, lots of people were honking their horns at them being like, Hey, cause they're obviously not paying attention. They just assumed whatever light was green and just zoomed through it. And I thought, Oh my goodness. Like they are just so lucky right there by the grace of God. Did they, were they lucky that everybody else was paying attention? And I thought, how can you not see, how can you not Approach an intersection and see what's going on around you that everyone else is stopped and what is going on. Absolutely. And the light is not working and you think, geez, maybe I should slow down for a second here and and realize what's happening in this intersection. But it's so funny you say that because 911 operators were reporting what they called a surge in nuisance calls. So this was people calling for every stupid reason under the sun. They were calling to see when the power was going to be back on again, which of course is not a 911 issue. And they were calling to ask about the four-way stop procedure saying, oh, I don't know how to do the four-way stop procedure. Do you know how to do this? I mean, (laughs) that's crazy. People calling 911 about that. I saw this story yesterday and I thought, you're telling me that somebody in the midst of a power outage, called 911 to ask the 911 operator, how do you do a four-way stop procedure? Yes. Now, Simi, I will say, I worked as a traffic reporter in my career, and you would be surprised how many times we'd deal with a situation similar to this, the power would go out or the lights wouldn't be working at one particular intersection. And we'd receive so many phone calls from people saying, can you remind people how to do the four-way stop procedure? You're kidding. People are blowing through this intersection. Someone's going to cause an accident. Someone's going to get hurt. People don't seem to understand this really basic procedure. Not only that, you know what else I hate? This is a big pet peeve of mine in a four-way stop procedure, the piggybackers. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That people were like, yes, we're all taking turns. Everybody's taking turns. It's fine. You're going to get through the intersection, but there's always somebody who's just going to sneak in with the person ahead of them, right? So it's not just one car getting through. It's like two or three cars getting through because they're just going to go. Yeah. And it just throws off the flow for everyone else. Should we walk through right now what the four-way stop procedure is just for clarity's sake? I believe we have to do this, but yes, go (laughs) ahead. Okay. So in a four-way stop procedure... It means that the first person to stop at the stop sign or the light that's not working is the first person to go again. However, if two vehicles arrive at the same time, then you yield to the vehicle who's on your right-hand side. If two vehicles who are facing each other stop at the same time, then it turns into essentially a two-way stop and you are both able to safely proceed. So again, the key rule here is that If you arrive at the intersection at the same time that someone else does and that vehicle is on your right-hand side, then you yield to the vehicle on your right-hand side. It's not rocket science. And also, you should have known this. It's a big thing when you get your driver's license. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, Simi, there's a lot of things that we yeah. learn, don't we, when we're getting our driver's license that we don't exactly follow. Yeah. On the roads, I think people see a lot of that behavior every single day. You wonder, how did these idiots get I their know. license? I just wonder this in general with this whole story that when I heard that they had a number of people who phoned 911 to say, when is the power going to be back on? What makes somebody actually press 911 on their I was going to say dial 911 there I was going to date myself but what makes somebody <laughs> press 911 on their phone an emergency situation you hope to never actually call 911 and then ask about when is the power going to be back on who does that I don't know Simi but I always I I cringe but I also enjoy each year when the 911 operators in BC put oh, yeah. out that list of the yeah. stupidest calls of the year that they've received. They usually do it around the end of the year, kind of reflecting back on what a year it's been. And considering that this has been a very unusual year all around the world for a number of different reasons, I'm sure that the weird 911 calls received this year are going to be extra interesting. But I always get a kick out of this list because some of the reasons why people call 911, it's just absolutely absolutely yeah. bizarre just the dumbest stuff and you know calling to see when the power is going to be back on again i mean that is so it. clearly not a 911 issue right? unless there's a real emergency happening but otherwise if you're just calling to say you know i'm sitting i'm a little sick of sitting here in the dark and my phone battery is getting low just wanted to call and see when the power is going to be back well, on i mean use your phone on. then to look up bc hydro's outage map and they will tell you when the power is going to be back on they'll tell you exactly. what the crews are being sent there and what time they expect the power back on so i would say nikki that the four Four-way stop, people not knowing the four-way stop procedure is very high up on my list of pet peeves on the road. What about you? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, for me, it's people, and we've, I think we've talked about this before, people signaling after they've already hit the brakes. So you're coming up to an intersection, oh, yeah. they know they want to turn, they put on their brakes because they're going to turn. And then they put their signal on. Improper and you go, signaling. yeah, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I wish I you told me that back there, buddy, so I could have gotten out from behind you. Exactly. And I'm sure that our listeners have a long list as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're going to talk about jobs. Because, of course, every election, ours in BC, that one in the United States, also is about the economy and about jobs. So the monthly labor force survey is coming out tomorrow. And we wanted to get a good look at how this second wave of the virus is impacting employment. Joining us now is Brendan Bernard, who's an economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab, back with us once again. Good morning, Brendan. Thanks for having me back. Are you seeing any positive signs in the month of October? Uh, it's really going to be a tug of war. You've got some areas of the economy that are pandemic exposed. In some cases, the economy of the country actually uh, shut down or restricted from normal activities as cases uh, have recently picked up. And those areas of the economy are definitely going to slow down, if not fall back uh, in October. We don't know if it, how exactly it's going to show up. So in some cases, people might be laid off temporarily, but hopefully not permanently, though that'll probably happen to, to some degree. Others might just lose hours worked. And so um, rather than fully losing their job, they might just have their sh shifts uh, cut back or um, or even uh, cut cut down to zero, and and so so we can think of the shutdown of sec sectors like restaurants, um, various areas of accommodation, tourism, recreation. Those are going to be the trouble spots in October. Elsewhere, though, labor market and I think the overall Canadian economy 
looks like it's coasting along right now in uh, in October. Um, we see on Indeed, for example, that October was a pretty good month for job postings outside of these pandemic exposed sectors. And so tug of war, you've got these vulnerable uh, areas of the economy that in some cases are being restricted um, and, and, and the rest. And uh, which side wins out is going to be the key for the overall labor market. Right. So do you expect it maybe to continue like this then for the next couple of months as we kind of deal with the second wave? Yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to see any, any other situation going forward. And, and, and really, uh, as long as the pandemic is here, this kind of dance and environment is going to be constantly present. It's really all about the momentum, though. These, these shut down, vulnerable and pandemic exposed sectors ha- have seen a rebound uh, over over the course of the summer and uh, through September, just because they fell so much uh, early in the pandemic. Um, but they're still a ways from normal, and uh, I don't think they're going to get any closer to, to normal in October. Right. So th- these numbers, though, are going to sort of stay kind of stubbornly high then, because it sounds like even for businesses, as long as they continue to get those supports from the federal government, they can kind of manage to keep their doors open. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, um, like uh, uh, federal support, both for businesses and households, has helped put the labor market on pause in some regards. Uh, and so that you know, if, if you're not getting a paycheck, uh, serve it, it, and and it's uh, and now um, new programs uh, will will help uh, uh, keep keep you afloat till then. Same thing goes with the wage subsidy, where if uh, uh, revenues are down at a business, the government's helping uh, to take on the cost of labor. And, and uh, in the short term, that helps keep things in place so that when cases die down uh, uh, and activity s- starts to resume, then there's work. there are workers right there uh, mm-hmm. re- ready to go um, to uh to, to, to get uh, thing, things back up and running. All right. Well, Brendan, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Brendan Bernard, economist with Indeed.ca, talking about the monthly labor force survey. So that means that we're going to find out about unemployment levels, what the rate is, what happened in the month of October. That comes out tomorrow. And he's saying we can expect it to be a bit of a tug of war. Good, you know, decent. I shouldn't say good, but decent in some areas, but still struggling in others. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of talk about social issues leading up to the American election, but in the end, did they have a huge impact on the way people voted? Now, if Joe Biden does end up winning this thing, there will be a lot of people on the Democratic side uh, who voted and said, listen, we want you to live up to the expectations. We want you to do more uh, for things like Black Lives Matter. We want we want to hear more about that. But will it actually happen? Joining us now to talk more about this is Laurel Weldon, a full professor, distinguished full professor at the Department of Political Science at Simon Fraser University. Laurel, thank you for being here. Thank you. So if we are talking about a Biden presidency, do we think social issues are going to be front and center or will he try to put all that aside to kind of perhaps heal some rifts? By social issues, do you mean abortion? I'm not sure what you mean by social issues in in particular. I mean, the issues... Sir, go ahead. Well, let's talk about the racial inequality issue, because that was a big one. And people mark that definitely as on exit polls as being concerned about that. So do you see that as being Mm -hmm. a priority then, if we do see a Biden administration? I don't think Biden will be able to avoid addressing the racial justice issue for the reason that it's been... um, 
becoming more and more prominent since, uh, you know, since, since Michael Brown and since with, with the whole rise of the Black Lives Matter movement over the past five years or so, six years. Um, and so, I mean, I think because it's become so prominent and part of, a permanent part of the public agenda, I don't see how he's going to avoid it. The people who are protesting um, police violence against African-Americans are not going anywhere. It's unlikely to stop. So I think that he but but I think um, a lot of uh, voters um, expect him to be better at handling it um, right. than than Trump did um, than Trump was, because um, that's a huge you know, issue, though. That's a huge issue, though, isn't it? Yeah. Because so many times mm-hmm. yeah, it's absolutely. about the words that the leader uses. And so often people mm-hmm. just didn't like mm-hmm. the words they were hearing. Not just that, but I think that, you know, somebody who if somebody actually wants to address racial justice and kind of bring some progress on this issue, um, then, you know, that's one thing. But I don't think there's any evidence that that's what um, President Trump wanted to do. Uh, I think what Trump wanted to do was incite more violence, especially in the run up to the election. Um, he quite clearly tried to make it an election issue. He wanted to make it an election issue, but he wanted to distract attention from the coronavirus, which he was unsuccessful in doing. Um, and so I think that he, um, you know, he, he wanted to, to he, he wanted to draw attention away away from that by ginning up concern about law and order issues um, and, and kind of trying to drive a wedge between, um, you know, kind of urban. He was trying to get at kind of suburban. He thought it would help him with suburban mm-hmm. um, voters, which I, I don't think there's any evidence that it did. Yeah, let's talk about what you're seeing in the results there. Do you do you think that people did vote their conscience on issues like Black Lives Matter or women's rights? I mean, right now, the, the, it's hard to get good data on exactly what's happening because, as you know, they're counting the votes as we're speaking. Um, but there's no evidence that um, people did anything other than vote their conscience. I think, you know, um, what we see in the, in the kind of run-up to the 2020 election is a kind of abandoning of the Republican Party by college-educated white voters, both in, in droves women, women for the first, white, white women for the first time, voted uh, Democratic uh, in the 2018 midterms, um, and, and that was largely driven by a change in college-educated white women. Um, and college-educated white men also began to um, uh, abandon the, the Republican Party, but that's a long-term trend. Right. So I think, you know, anyway, so I think that that's kind of what we're seeing in the... I, I expect that that's what we see here in 2020, which is why... Um, These Midwest states are so much closer than they were for Hillary Clinton, who did not get that same kind of support among white voters. So, um, yeah, and I think that that's largely because of, you know, this this summer for the first time, as you referencing, I think, as you're talking about, was the first time a majority of white Americans said that racial justice was the most important issue to them. Um, And it still was an important issue to people at the polls, although not as important as some of the other things that were at the top of the list. But it was definitely on people's minds as they went to the polls. There's just sort of overwhelming, I think it was for the people who were going to vote for Biden, um, you know, racial justice was one of the issues on their minds anyway. Um, the, the kind of white women who were abandoning uh, Trump um, are people who support racial equality more than other voters. So if we're talking about a President Biden here, what kind of issues do you think he's going to have to do something about in order to keep his base happy? What is he going to have to do on um, if if we if we are talking about President Biden as they count the votes and we'll find out? Yes. Um, you, you know, I think uh, he will have to do something. I mean, an edge that Biden has over Trump, I was sort of going getting here, but I didn't manage to get there. Is um, 
that Biden historically had a pretty good relationship with the police. And while in the kind of primaries in the election, um, this was something that people tried to use as a, as a kind of um, a wedge um, to, to kind of bludgeon him and, and weaken him in the Democratic elect- electorate, which, which by and large was even more uh, kind of supportive of racial justice than the population at large, um, you know, and concerned about the police. So for both Biden and Kamala, people were saying that their history as being prosecutors, their history as um, kind of supporting right. uh, punitive law and order measures was going to be bad. But that may get him some credibility um, as a kind of lawmaker. And it may be why a lot of reason that people think he's going to do better at trying to create some consensus on this issue. Now, I do think that he's going to be hobbled in general um, to do anything on this issue uh, with uh, if he doesn't, if the Democrats don't win the Senate. I think that'll make things very difficult for them. Oh, we will see, won't we? Laurel, so much to wait for. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Laura Weldon, Distinguished Full Professor at the Department of Political Science at Simon Fraser University, talking about the social issue aspect of the U.S. election. Uh, did that motivate people to vote in a certain way? That's a lot of the data that is being crunched right now, even as we are still waiting for the full results. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you've lost some money lately, and I don't mean figuratively, I mean like literally a wad of cash, this next story is for you. Or Nikki Reitmeyer's back with us. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yes, this applies to someone who was in a Staples in Coquitlam last Thursday, so Thursday, October 29th, okay. and perhaps dropped a quote-unquote large sum of cash and this was inside some kind of a container apparently it's a very distinct looking container so whoever the money actually belongs to should be able to describe the amount of money that it is the denomination of the bills and then what that cash was being carried in and i was going to say nikki's not being coy here with how much the money was (laughs) and what was you're doing that's being done on purpose because police want the person who dropped it to be able to describe all of that yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to build a mystery here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know this information either. Because of course, police, they don't want to give away too many details and say, yeah, it was found inside a black wallet. And it's, you know, 150 bucks in 20s, because then someone, you know, off the street will just go in and claim it. So they, they leave a few details out when they say that this large amount of money has been found so that hopefully the right owner is able to come forward and then identify the money, the wallet or, you know, whatever container. That's the phrase they're using, the container that yes. it was dropped in. So if you were in Staples getting, uh, I don't know, a few hundred dollars worth of photocopying done <laughs> and you dropped your wallet or your whatever, then the Coquitlam RCMP are are looking for you. And they said, there's no reason to feel embarrassed. They said, we would simply like to get the money back to the rightful owner. Interesting. Okay. Because the reason why police are that careful is because just like we, human nature is funny that way, Nikki, right? Like people will try to claim it even though it's not their money. Oh, of course. As as Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. So I think when people (laughs) hear about these kinds of stories in the news, they think, well, geez, you know, I could call up the RCMP and tell them that I lost a few hundred bucks and see maybe if I could get this money for myself. I mean, we saw this play out in September. You know, it was almost hilarious. The RCMP said that 50 people 
came forward trying to falsely claim a wad of cash that was dropped in North Vancouver. It was a big chunk of change, too. It turned out to be $2,600 all in cash. Now, the rightful owner eventually came forward and they were able to give the exact denomination of the bills. They were able to say where they lost it, and that was consistent with where the money was found. So in the end, you know, the rightful owner was, was right. found, but they said that more than four dozen people pretending to be the owner of the money... Yeah, came forward the police described it as and this is a quote a marathon episode of the price is right <laughs> people <laughs> just trying to guess uh, uh two thousand dollars can you imagine though can you imagine having oh. the chutzpah to phone the same people by the way <laughs> who obviously like to also call 911 and ask when the power is going to come back yeah. on we were talking about them earlier but to call up the police and be like oh yeah yeah that cash that i was i that i was i dropped that and then this very simple question of, well, how much was it? And you can't answer? And you still thought it was a good idea to phone? Yeah, I know. It's right? absolutely crazy. And even the RCMP said, they said, well, it's disappointing to think that there are people out there who might not have turned the money in. It's plain despicable to see people trying to falsely claim ownership. So first of all, kudos to the person who found this cash and said, oh, yeah. this isn't mine. I better turn this over to the RCMP. So you have one good Samaritan who did that. And then you've got 50 odd bad Samaritans who are calling <laughs> in and saying, uh, you know, I think this money's mine. It was in a, a wallet, right? right. I, I uh, dropped a big chunk of change. I mean, come on. But kudos to you, Nikki, for turning that into a sports, um, you know, analogy, because <laughs> you turn that into a Wayne Gretzky, you miss the shots you never take. So we should just recap for people where this latest wad of cash was found. Yes, if you are the rightful owner, then get in touch with the Coquitlam RCMP because they found a large amount of cash in a Staples in Coquitlam, and that was on Thursday, October 29th. Okay, that should be enough. Like, you should know by now. Maybe you even phoned the store. And you talked about Good Samaritans. I guess it was the manager or somebody at the store who found that money and turned it into police. Yeah, it was the manager who found nice. it, and then they called the police and they turned it in. Yeah, and so that money just sitting there waiting for the rightful owner to return and uh, I guess finish their Christmas shopping or whatever they were doing with that large sum of cash. Christmas shopping. Look at you. You're such. You're so positive. Thank you so much for that, Nikki. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. Isn't she? She's just like a glass half full person. So yes, contact Coquitlam RCMP, but only if you really are the rightful owner. Clearly. They're going to give you a hard time if you think that you can just call them up and try to claim this cash. But a couple of months ago, it didn't stop something like 50 people from doing the same thing with North Vancouver RCMP when they said uh, somebody had also lost a large amount of cash. Human nature, man, it never ceases to amaze me. This is Mornings with Simi. So when it comes to dealing with COVID-19, we know that BC has kind of chosen a province-wide approach to the pandemic, even though some regions have kind of disproportionately had more cases than others. I mean, just take a look at what's happening with Fraser Health right now. Fraser Health has the majority of cases that we're seeing in BC, places like the interior, the north, Vancouver Island, very few cases, yet everyone kind of operates under the same kind of restrictions. So would a regional restriction system work for us? Well, some are calling on the provincial government to examine that. We're joined now by the executive director of the Downtown Victoria Business Improvement Association, Jeff Bray. Jeff, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what is business like these days in downtown Victoria? Well, you know, uh, certainly people here on the island have really embraced shop local 
so, you know, businesses uh, are sort of enjoying uh, reconnecting with, with their local customers. We didn't have a tourism season, just like you know, Vancouver. You know, we're an urban tourism centre, so uh, we didn't see any sort of real tourism this summer. Uh, and we don't have returning students uh, and some of those people that come into uh, the city every year. So it's been a struggle, but, you know, businesses have been surviving um, because of uh, people making uh, really purposeful shopping decisions and, and, and buying local. And so, uh, you know, it's been tough, uh, but uh, there are more businesses operating than I would have anticipated, say, at the beginning of September, and that's uh, that's a good sign. Right, and the number of cases on Vancouver Island has remained quite low, hasn't it? Well, that's correct. I mean, we're well under 300 cases since the start of the pandemic, and that's island-wide. You know, we have 700,000 people on Vancouver Island. Uh, and, uh, you know, we take, uh, you know, certainly great pride that uh, I think the population has done a great job. Uh, island Health has done a great job. And we're an island. So we also have some geographic uh, protection that uh, uh, has allowed us to maybe keep the numbers, you know, extremely right. low, certainly in comparison to Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal. So would you like to see regional restrictions, like perhaps loosen for Vancouver Island? Well, you know, we, we certainly, uh, we're not sure that we necessarily need to loosen them. I mean, we uh, have tremendous respect, I think like everyone does, with uh, the advice that Dr. Bonnie Henry has given. And uh, up to this point, the one-size-fits-all approach for the province, I think, was the right approach uh, because we've got province-wide buy-in. But as we uh, head into the fall and we are trying to keep our economy going, uh, I think it's time for the provincial government to balance uh, the health uh, officer's approach with also managing the education system, transportation system, and our economy. And look at regional approaches to handling the pandemic based on numbers within that region. And, and I'm not necessarily sure that we need to roll back at this point. I'm not sure there's a real appetite in, in places like Victoria for that. But if we're seeing these numbers spike in, say, the lower mainland, and there is the contemplation of adi- additional restrictions we would argue that they should be in the areas that are having the uh, outbreaks and not province-wide. Now, what's the mask situation like, Jeff, then in, in the Victoria area? Are, are people kind of wearing them everywhere they're supposed to wear them? They wear them in restaurants and, you know, until they start eating that kind of stuff? Yeah, you know, you're you're seeing, you know, a very, very high level of uh, sort of uh, what I call community compliance within uh, Greater Victoria. Uh, so certainly the businesses uh, have done all that they are supposed to do to make sure that their work uh, sites are safe for customers and staff. And just in general, the population has sort of embraced, uh, you know, wearing masks, uh, not having uh, large gatherings, private gatherings. And, and, you know, there right. is a high level of compliance. But do you get a little apprehensive then when you do see the numbers for Fraser Health? Because, I mean, all these public health orders have pretty much been province-wide. It, well, that's exactly it. And when uh, the province signaled that uh, the weekend uh, had a particularly high jumps, we, we started to say, well, now we need the provincial government to step in and say, you know, if there's a major outbreak at a dance studio in Coquitlam, do we need to shut down restaurants in Campbell River? And and our position is that perhaps uh, we don't necessarily need to do it province-wide. And what have you heard then? Like when you put that suggestion out there, have health officials said anything to you about that? Well, you know, of course, they, they take the direction from uh, the provincial health officer who happens to be based here in, in Victoria. Uh, but we actually think that this is where the provincial government uh, needs to sort of come back to the table. They, they've done an excellent job of standing back and letting the provincial health officer, you know, make these 
decisions. But we think now there needs to be some balance between the responsibility that the provincial government has with that which is Dr. Bonnie Henry. She has population health as her sole focus. Uh, the provincial government has all the other aspects of our society under their responsibility. So we think it's a conversation between the provincial government and the provincial health officer. Uh, but we think it's it's time to have that conversation and look seriously at regional approaches to either lifting restrictions or if new restrictions are needed, placing them where the outbreaks are. Right. Okay, Jeff, thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me. Jeff Bray, Executive Director at the Downtown Victoria Business Association, advocating for the idea of regional restrictions if they are needed. This is Mornings with Simi. The federal government has handed out money right across the country to provinces in return for passing it on to, you know, local communities, to cities and towns to help them deal with COVID-19 and the effects of the pandemic. Well, unfortunately for the city of Vancouver, they're not getting the amount of money that they thought they were going to. And Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is not happy about that. He joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So what happened here? Yeah, I mean, I was part of these negotiations right from the beginning, way back in uh, the spring. You might remember I, uh, you know, went in the media and I said we were having fiscal difficulty at the city. I got kind of attacked for that, but I had to tell the folks the truth of what was going on because of COVID. Uh, And pretty soon Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, Montreal, they all kind of said the same thing. So we got together in a group of big city mayors and started talking to the federal government And for the first time in the history of the country, the federal government decided to give municipalities money to pay their police and firefighters and keep their community centers open through COVID. So uh, an amount was agreed to, and then uh, checks were sent to the provinces to distribute to municipalities on a per capita basis, and that's in the the, uh, agreement. Uh, So Jason Kenney honored this agreement, and Doug Ford honored this agreement, but as we found out yesterday... Uh, that agreement was not honored by uh, Premier Horgan. And uh, we, instead of getting about $60 million to keep the lights on, uh, we got 16 And what was the so, rationale for that? So per capita, if they had done it that way, Vancouver would have gotten more money. But which way yeah, did they more. do it? Yeah, which way did they do it? And what was the rationale for it? Who knows? They have some formula. But basically, the $45 million that's missing from Vancouver ended up in West Vancouver and Anmore and Belcara and Bowen Island you know, places that aren't, that don't have the downtown east side, they don't have uh, the same uh, pressures in terms of keeping the downtown core going. Uh, we opened and paid for, four, you know, uh, the permitting of 400 patios to keep businesses going. That's what that money was for, uh, and for this fiscal year. So right at the end of the year, when we're kind of closing off our books and we are counting on this money, the province handed us what essentially is a surprise, the equivalent of a surprise uh, 7% property tax hike. Have you talked to the province about this or anybody there? Nope. Any no res- calls being returned. No calls, so you've called them and nobody's called you back. Absolutely. And and uh, not even a heads up that this is coming. Just like, you know, kind of feels like a punch in the stomach, got to tell you. So clearly the money was then distributed, you know, to other communities as well, right? Like Surrey got more, Burnaby got more. They got more than they would have under the per capita system. No, they got way less. The big cities all got hit hard. So where Surrey should have had about $50 million, they ended up with 15 Where Burnaby should have ended up with, uh, I don't know, 30 $35 million, they ended up with nine. And who benefited were very small, wealthy municipalities that in, now that they have the money, they'll probably end up using it to give tax cuts 
to their residents. You know, so you, like might, the, you might not be making yourself very popular with some of these other mayors. You know, I just got to fight for the city here. Like, we're in, we're in trouble. We got, we got uh, an overdose epidemic here. We got a person dying a day. We're putting tons of city resources into this. Our police and firefighters are exhausted by fighting this. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we have businesses that are going under because of COVID, and we're trying to do everything we can at the city to keep them open. And I just think, like, <laughs> you know, have we fallen off, off the province's radar? I just, I just don't get it. And, um, you know, the, the feds have been coming through in spades. For Strathcona Park, you know, the city set aside, we, we just approved $30 million to help with homelessness. The feds rushed right in and gave us another $50 million. Total crickets are in the province. Nothing on, on Strathcona. What does this mean then for the end-of-the-year finances for the city of Vancouver? Like, how do you close that gap if you were expecting that money? Well, ironically, we had our budget presentation yesterday at the same time we were getting this news. And you could see that our CFO, the, you know, the finance officer at the, at the city, we're all just sitting there with our jaws on the floor because this money in a written agreement that, you know, we're happy to send to you, uh, all of a sudden they yanked, you know, 40 to $50 million out of, our, out of our budget surprise right at the end of the year. And you can imagine what would that, that would do to your personal finances if you had that kind of shock at the end. It's kind of like if they reassess your taxes and you have to pay an extra 20 grand or something, uh, that's kind of what happened. That's what the province did to us yesterday. Right. Have you talked to Doug McCallum or Mike Hurley about this? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're really grateful to the federal government for these transfers, I think. Like, I consider the, the $16 million we got is from the feds, and so very grateful to them uh, for doing something that's never been done in the history of the country. But uh, got to say, uh, this is going to make 2021's budget extremely tough. Are you looking at cuts then? Well, you know, the staff came to us yesterday and said just to keep things going the way they are in the city would require a 12% property tax increase before we got this news. Now, of course, we're never going to do that at council. So uh, and I explained this in the spring too. Like we have to balance our budgets, right? We, we, we can't run deficits. And so we do have some reserve money that we have for things like freak snowstorms and that kind of stuff, which we can we can spend, but that's not that's that's rainy day money. That's not to pay for your groceries. So um, we can burn through that, and then we're into layoffs. And and what's extra tricky for us is we're in the middle of collective bargaining with unions. So um, that makes those diff- uh, those negotiations extremely difficult. Well, I have a feeling we'll be checking back in with you. But thank you for yeah. your time this morning. Okay, if you find the money, send it back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. That's Kennedy Stewart. The mayor of Vancouver, not at all happy, as you heard there, with the provincial government. This is Mornings with Simi. Kind of feels like a punch in the stomach, gotta tell you. That is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, not happy, clearly, with how municipal relief funding from the federal government is being distributed by the province. Federal government ponied up the money, gave it to the province to distribute, Mayor Stewart says it was all agreed upon. It was per capita funding. Didn't turn out that way. City of Vancouver was expecting something like $60 million. Instead, they're getting $16 million. And he had some pretty strong words to say about that just a few minutes ago here on the show. Not every mayor, though, is mad or upset about how this worked out. We wanted to check in this morning with Brad West, the mayor of Porco Quitlam, who joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Now, you were tweeting about this this morning, and you waited. How much money is Port Coquitlam getting? $5.6 million. 
Is that what you were expecting? Uh, that's about in line with what we had hoped to achieve based on the discussions that were going on between uh, municipalities and senior levels of government. And so what do you think then about what Mayor Stewart had to say? Well, you know, I'm not in a position to uh, pass judgment on how Vancouver's uh, approach uh, this issue. What I can say is that I think the province has made the right decision. Uh, the alternative to this, of course, would be that all the money would flow into uh, the city of Vancouver, and you would have a lineup of a whole bunch of mayors of, of medium-sized cities saying this is unfair. What the province did was say that each municipality is going to get a baseline amount uh, and that there is additional money for larger cities on a per capita basis over and above that baseline amount. That seems to me to be a logical and, and fair way to, to do this. But more to the point, um, we were never planning for this money. We were always taking the approach that if there was relief funding from federal provincial government, that would be helpful. But it's our responsibility to have our own fiscal house in order. And so we were undertaking a number of steps and, and have and will continue in Port Coquitlam to make sure that uh, we can weather this storm. Uh, and so while this money is helpful and it's going to allow us to manage some of the impacts to re revenue that we've experienced, it does not and should not absolve us of that responsibility to be managing our city responsibly. So you're saying you weren't counting on it. You hadn't already banked on this money. Correct. It was not part of our uh, part of our budget. Uh, we were not uh, planning, you know, again, it was sort of this would be great. A bunch of people are advocating for it. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen many times uh, until the check is in hand, don't count on it. And so, you know, we were taking responsibility for our city's finances and doing a number of things to put ourselves in the position that uh, uh, this money was was not uh, going to be uh, required to be able to, mm -hmm. to balance our budget. So, Mayor West, then, can you give us an idea of the kind of impact that COVID-19 and the pandemic has had, though, on Port Coquitlam and the finances? Sure. Um one of the, I mean, obviously the most, the, the most obvious example is the closure of recreation facilities. And so uh, in closing recreation facilities, we uh, did not receive the revenue that is associated with those, but we also didn't absorb some of the costs that are associated with running those. We keep our recreation facilities very subsidized because we want them to be uh, accessible to everyone in our community, regardless of income level. Uh, and so, you know, that was not a huge hit to our revenue. One of the ways in which our city, I think, is uniquely positioned, um, and I'm, you know, this isn't bragging, it's just that the reality is that we have not become, as some municipalities have, over-reliant upon non-stable sources of revenue. So some cities charge for parking. Uh, there is no pay parking in Port Coquitlam. And so our city has not, uh, you know, become reliant upon parking revenue uh, over, you know, the last number of years. Some cities receive gaming revenue, uh, money from casinos. We, we do not. So we have not, therefore, become over-reliant upon these things that all of a sudden when COVID hit, where right. the, you know, the rug was ripped under you, a carpet was pulled from you, and, uh, and, and you weren't receiving that revenue. Right. So there are certain things about our, our city and how it's managed and, and the history of it uh, that meant we have been and are continuing to be very well positioned to 
to weather uh, COVID-19. But to look to play devil's advocate here for a second, yep. I'm sure there are some mayors who are thinking, yeah, but you don't have the other problems of an ex- like a larger homeless population. Uh, you don't have those kinds of issues either to have to deal with. Well, we certainly do have some homeless issues and, and work on those. Um, and yes, the, I would never say that it's anything comparable to the city of Vancouver, but the amount of money that uh, is allocated from senior levels of government towards those issues isn't comparable either. So, uh, you know, the, the senior levels of government do spend significant sums of money and provide significant funding uh, on those issues. I appreciate some people believe it, it's not enough and, you know, there's discussion and debate that happens there. But um, it, it, everything is relative. Yes, they have a, a, a bigger issue, a bigger challenge. They also receive significantly more money to deal with it. It gets way more attention than right. uh, from those gut levels of government than homelessness does in Port Coquitlam or other places. All right. Well, Mayor West, thanks for your time on that this morning. Thanks very much for having me. That's Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, also weighing in on this federal bailout money that was going to the uh, different communities around BC. We heard Mayor Kennedy Stewart of Vancouver very upset. He feels Vancouver did not get its fair share, but Mayor West says, no, he figures the province did a decent job in allocating that money.